storm clouds race across the sky, and lightning illuminates the battlefield. The living fight the dead, as far as the eye can see. The sounds of steel and dead flesh, powerful spells and unearthly screams fill the air. In the center of the field, on top of a hillock, stands Benthic, the first necromancer. He holds a strange sword aloft, its blade piercing the sky. His muscles strain as he pulls it through the air. The dead around him fall to the seal of the Fellowship. Their white cloaks stained with blood and clay, they stand tall in a circle around the man. Their leader shouts over the din of the battle, This is your last chance. Surrender and face the judgment of the Fellowship of the Seven Rivers, or die. Benthic smiles a wicked smile. White fire spills from his eyes as he reaches for the skies and plucks a thunderbolt from the heavens. It gathers, jittering between his fingertips, as he thrusts his arm toward the surrounding paladins. A sword point emerges from his chest. One of Benthic's many layers of concentration drops, and so too do hundreds of dead things far off in the battlefield. There's a distant cheer as the surrounding paladins close their circle and push the necromancer to the ground. The year is 178 ADW. The final battles in the war with the necromancer Benthic scour the giant's plains like wildfire. As the newly formed Fellowship of the Seven Rivers gathers fighters from across the country, Benthic and the fighting that follows him destroy homes and lives. Among the many, many casualties are a family of Kanara conductors. Left in the rubble of a town now long forgotten, one young Kanara named Remel was left orphaned. With nothing but his mother's fiddle, Remel wandered the wreckage of his young life, scared and alone. Before the embers had even finished smoldering, scavengers descended on the broken towns like carrion birds, searching for anything that could be salvaged or sold. Climbing onto the back of a cart, Remel tucked himself in among straw and animal pelts, holding his mother's fiddle, and fell asleep. When he woke up, he found himself in a busy town. Point, at the time, was a bustling trade port. Water and walls had kept it protected from the wrath of Benthic, and it was generally considered to be a safe haven. Remel survived on the streets, making a few silver here and there playing his fiddle. But Point, as a busy town, had its fair share of dangers. Between the town guard shaking him down on a weekly basis, thieves, and gangs of bullies, Remel was lucky to take in five silver a week. Soon, he was discovered by a local swindler, a Dvergar who called himself Strix. Strix was not a nice man, but in exchange for the silver Remel made, he was given a safe place to sleep and a meal a day. Strix and his boys were well known around town, and the thieves and bullies left them alone more often than not. Remel lived this life, safe within the walls of Point, through most of his teenage years. But at the age 17, Remel killed a man. The snow fell heavily on Point that winter. The midwinter festival of the Wolf Mother was underway, and people from all over the region came to celebrate the solstice. Remel had been playing in the town's main thoroughfare, and had had a good day. Packing up his fiddle and bag of coins, he began his walk towards Strix Havel. The streets were cold, and the snow muffled the sounds of the festival to a distant hum. As Remel turned a corner, he was met with a knife. Give me all your money, the cup purse demanded. He stood tall over the Kanara, stubble thick on his face, his acrid breath pluming out in the cold winter air. Remel fumbled for his bag, handing over the silver he had made that day. 
that too, he said, indicating the instrument. Remmel refused. Hand it over, yelled the thief. Remmel clutched the fiddle to his chest. The thief lunged forward with his knife. Remmel stepped aside. The thief lost his balance and Remmel pushed him as he passed. A soft thud. The sound of scattering coins. In silence. A cheer rose and fell from the distant festivities. Then all was quiet. Remmel panicked, checked to find the man dead. He gathered his coins as quickly as possible, hoping to leave no evidence. Moving the thief's body into a dark corner, something fell from his person. A book. Rommel picked it up and turned it over in his hands. It was simply bound in old soft leather with a number of soft cloth bookmarks. Tentatively opening it, Rommel found pages of handwritten script, drawings and diagrams, maps, plans, and instructions for raising the dead. He quickly tossed the book aside, but then considered the possibilities. The thief was dead because of him. Maybe he could undo what he had done. Moving back into the dark alley, Remmel began reading. Hours later, Remmel felt ready to try something out of the book. Standing over the thief, he reached out into death and found a spirit, brought it to the body. The body began convulsing, twisting and turning in grotesque ways. Remmel faltered, stumbling backward, landing in the snow. The dead thing slowly stood, its legs shaking its hands grasping as if the thing inside the body were getting used to its new host. Rommel scrambled for the thief's dropped knife, searching in the deepening snow. The dead thing loomed out of the shadows and lunged at Rommel. Rommel's hands found the cold steel, turning just in time. The knife plunged into the thing as it landed on the young Kanara. Its hands clawed at his cloak, teeth gnashing in his face. The cold breath escaped from its dead lungs as Rommel pushed the knife further. And then it was silent again. The gravity of the events of that night weighed on Remmel for the next week. In the dead days of winter, those days between the celebration of the Wolf Mother and the New Year, Remmel decided to bring the book to the local fellowship stronghold. He turned in the book and told the whole story to one of the guardians there. After he finished his story, the paladin and Ision turned the book over in his claws. He left the room for a moment, coming back with two additional paladins. Remmel was put in shackles and brought to the frigid basement of the stronghold, where he was told he would await transport to the Iron Tower and trial. The paladins raided Strix's hovel, turning the Dvergar and the boys onto the street. They ransacked the place until they found Remmel's fiddle and fined Strix for harboring a necromancer. He should feel lucky they didn't arrest him, too. Remmel found that he wasn't alone in the underground cells of the stronghold. His cellmate, a hellbling named Nolki proudly declared himself a necromancer. Nolki already had an escape plan and was willing to let Remmel in on it. The next few months were long and cold. Nolki taught Remmel some magic, including some minor necromantic spells. If the Fellowship were going to treat you as if you were a necromancer, mused Nolki, you might as well be one. The only light in their cells came from a small ground level grate, which let the cold in and dripped spring flood water into their cells when the season came. When spring arrived, the paladins loaded Nolke and Remmel into the back of an iron carriage and began their journey to the Iron Tower. Among the tall redwoods in the forest outside Longvale, Nolke and Remmel executed their plan. Nolke was not young for a Hellbling. Like many necromancers, his dances in death 
and use of strange and esoteric magic had extended his life far beyond that of normal people. He'd been around Fenerain once or twice and knew most of the roads that the paladins used, traveling to and from the tower. As the caravan stopped for the night, Nulki knew that there was a graveyard not twenty paces from the road. Lost to time, the gravestones had sunk into the earth and were covered with early spring growth. But the bodies were still there. Most necromancers do their magic, that of raising and binding the dead, using an instrument. When crafting a complex spell, binding ideas to notes and melodies is a helpful way to remember and concentrate on the magic. When the paladins let Nulki out of the carriage to answer nature's call in the woods, they thought they were safe because he didn't have his instrument. They were wrong. With the paladins taken care of, Nulki and Remmel took their instruments, the book, and some horses, and traveled into the wilderness. In the wilderness, Remmel gathered his thoughts. Nulki subscribed to the tenets of Benthic. He often talked about power and chaos. Remmel thought his arguments and reasoning were weak at best. Remmel had questions about the systems in place in Guildland. Yes, the Fellowship and Royal Militia had taken action against Benthic in the North all those years ago, but they had failed in the aftermath. What government would allow orphaned children to live on the street? The wealthy enjoyed their lifestyles living on the backs of laborers who couldn't make ends meet, let alone rise in society. Circumstances forced desperate people to commit desperate acts, hurting themselves and others. What gave the guards of point the right to extort the poor and less privileged? And what gave the Fellowship of the Seven Rivers, for all intents and purposes a civilian organization, the right to create and enforce their own laws? To imprison people for nothing? The system was broken, and Rummel decided that it needed to be destroyed. Despite their different viewpoints, Remmel and Nilke spent the next few years together. Nilke taught Remmel everything he knew, and Remmel convinced Nilke to bide his time. The two necromancers traveled west to the swamps in High Reach, avoiding fellowship detection and moving outside its reach. Remmel quickly mastered all of the spells Nilke taught him and moved on to the thief's book. Remmel worked to decipher the book, whose language was strange and pages spelled to hide information. In translating it, he learned things few necromancers knew, even to this day. Late into their stay in High Reach, Remmel wandered off to attempt a spell he found in the thief's book. He wandered until he found an ancient stone circle. The purposefully placed rocks created a perfect ring, as if they were the remains of some archaic dwelling. Sitting in the center, with his sword, one stolen from the paladins outside Longvale, on his lap, Remmel entered death. The waters lapped around his ankles as he waded through the rivers, making his way all the way to the cascade at the end of death. Here he called out, using the words he had deciphered from the book. He spat them out, his voice infused with powerful magic that burned his tongue. A dark shape rose from the twilight waters. Black claws exploded with terrifying speed towards Remmel's head. The thing pulled the Kanara's ears back, attempting to force Remmel to look up at what lies beyond death. Remmel choked out more fiery words. A ring like sunlight spun around the dead thing's neck, binding it to Remmel. Returning to the earth, the molten form of a mermaid knelt before Remmel. Powerful enough to exist on the earth with a body of its own design, the mermaid, who Remmel now knew was Messos, 
who would later be known by many other names, stood, dripping like the waters of the Cascade. Remmel asked for its secrets. The two stood in the stone circle for a long time. Remmel promised Mesos its freedom in exchange for knowledge. Mesos agreed with one condition. When Remmel was old and gray, Mesos would once again visit the necromancer, who would die by his hand. Remmel agreed. Mesos taught him everything. Nolke was getting suspicious. He was already a paranoid person. Remmel had shown promise back in the dungeon in Point, but he hadn't been able to convert him to his chaotic cause. And now Remmel was powerful, probably more powerful than Nolke. Their time in the swamps had been good and they'd become close, but that paranoia itched at the back of Nolke's mind constantly. Months after meeting with Mesos, the Maraid was free to leave. Remmel and Nolke decided to move forward with a plan. They traveled back to the north above Guildland and began to raise an army in the Giant's Plains. They made their message known far and wide, and the poor and downtrodden flocked to Remmel. His living acolytes were taught the basics of necromancy and assisted in gathering the dead for Remmel and Nolke's armies. As their army was raised, Remmel again went into death and summoned four more powerful maraids. He promised them their freedom in exchange for loyalty, an idea Nolke did not like and could not condone. And as things went, Nolke was probably right. Remmel summoned the Bone King, Aki, who could raise and command the dead on his own. Thorn, a vicious massive beast who would later be known as the Demon of Greenfield. Whisper, the mortal echo who could place ideas in the minds of the weak-willed. And Sabine, the Selector, a brilliant strategist. The army grew to the thousands and the necromancers prepared for their march south. They moved on Eridu, Gildan's northernmost city, and captured it easily. Where Remmel showed restraint, Nolke's army was ruthless. Remmel tried to get the other necromancer to slow down, to think, to ease his attack, but he wouldn't. Before the day was done, Eridu was left desolate. That night, when the living made camp inside the city walls, Nolke had a visitor. Whisper came to the Helpling in his sleep, plucking the thoughts of betrayal, insecurity, and paranoia from his mind, bringing them to the forefront and adding one little itch. Murder. Nolke woke with a muddled mind. He reached for his sword, turning to Remmel, but didn't find him in their tent. He stalked through the camp, opening tent flaps, confused acolytes giving him quizzical looks from the firesides. Nolke found Remmel, poring over maps with Aki and Sabine, planning the next step of their campaign. He shouted incoherent oaths and thrust his sword, catching Remmel in the shoulder. Remmel, acting on instinct, tried to step aside, pushing the older necromancer backward. Nolke staggered with the force of the push, stumbling back. It was a crack as the base of his skull hit the edge of a barrel. Ignoring his own wound, Remmel knelt, readying a spell of healing for Nolke. In the rush, he hadn't felt it. The Hellbling had died before he hit the ground. In the days that followed, in conference with Aki and Sabine, Remmel had worked out that, though the ideas may have been in Nolke's mind, ultimately Whisper had been responsible for the necromancer's betrayal. Remmel gave control of Nolke's army to Aki, the Bone King. 
Rommel decided to split his forces. Aki would take half of the army southwest through the Spine Mountains, and he would lead the other half south towards Goldspire. The two halves would then each march on the Iron Tower. Sabine and Whisper would stay with Rommel's army so that he could keep an eye on the traitorous Maraid, while Thorin would join Aki. But fate was working against the Necromancer. After the death and destruction at Eridu, some of Remmel's acolytes were left shaken. They'd been promised the destruction of the system that had kept them down, but had witnessed the senseless slaughter of an entire town. One acolyte fled in the night, detailing Remmel's plan to paladins in the town of Fell Lake. The Bone King traveled west and planned to turn south at Bear Point, but was instead met with an army of Fellowship paladins. The paladins and a number of royal guardspeople, tipped off by the traitorous acolyte, fought a long battle with the Bone King, Thorn, and their army of the dead. The Bone King was victorious, but barely so. He and the few dead things that remained stole away into the mountains, leaving Remmel's campaign behind. Thorn, a beast of many forms, was left alone on the mountainside. Sprouting wings it took to the sky, returning to Remmel's remaining forces. When Thorn returned, the plan changed. Sabine and Remmel reluctantly decided to move into the plains of the Karnak Valley to regroup. They took the town of Ingot, a small mining outpost, as a base. The next few weeks were filled with strategizing and raising the dead, but after the ambush at Bear Point, Remmel's acolytes were restless. Remmel spent hours behind closed doors with Sabine, while Thorn paced menacingly, looking at them like they were food. In a whisper, was having mischievous fun with their minds, and they knew it. Though Ingot was only a small outpost at the time, word got out that Remmel had been using it as a base. Across the country, forces readied themselves to move on the army of the dead. From the west, Fellowship Paladins. From the east, Longvale Militia. And from the south, Gilder Military and Royal Guards. Three armies converged on Ingot. The battle lasted many days and nights. Deaths meant more dead for Remmel's army, but the combined forces of Guildland had small victories that added up. Thorn was nearly destroyed in an early magical barrage against the outpost. Its wounds were so great that it flew off to the southeast, abandoning the fight. Riders lost track of it in the tall grasses of Yicht Miicht. On the fourth day of the battle, Remmel's acolytes turned on him, and fighting broke out inside the outpost of Ingot. One of the acolytes, seeing Whisper weakened, forged a spell powerful enough to bind the Maraid to his own body. The acolyte felt no pain as his spell went awry, burning him up in a twisting inferno, leaving only the knuckle bone Whisper was bound to. The Fellowship found the bone and sealed it within a reliquary, which would later make its way to the repository for troublesome spirits in Gilder. Sabine provided one final strategy for Remmel, one she enacted shortly after providing it to the Kanara. Run. Remmel did. Remmel fled north, to the place he had once called home, the Giant's Plains. The Giant's Plains are vast, a landscape pockmarked with sinkholes and lone mountains. It's one easy to hide or get lost in. They say Remmel spent the remaining years of his life wandering in search of something, but nobody ever knew what. He always kept a small band of the dead with him. He no longer trusted the living. In 228, Messos, now known as Messos the Shadow Eater or Messos the Finder, 
located Remmel to finish the deal they made 25 years earlier. Remmel died at the age of 54. I hope you enjoyed this short journey into the world of Fenrain. We'll see you next time for more about the world and the people in it. Be sure to subscribe to the Fenrain Files wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a five-star review so other people can find the show. If you send your questions or topics to us on Twitter or Discord, we might answer them in future episodes. And if you're interested in our world, be sure to check out the Other Place podcast. Each season, we follow a new group of adventurers as they journey across Fenrain, uncovering mysteries and trying to save the world from the encroaching darkness. You can find The Other Place wherever you get your podcasts. The Fenrain Files is a production of Nightcast Creative. To learn more about us and the podcasts we make, visit nightcastcreative.com.